0: Man, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians, and we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2. That's where we ended last week, and we kind of ended last week in a little bit of a cliffhanger. You may not have felt like it was a cliffhanger, maybe not really feeling like there was a lot there, but we left in the midst of Paul giving an argument about how we should live out our faith in the presence of church, like how we should Live out that faith of Christ, the grace of God in our lives, how that should be lived out when we are working together in a church all together. And so we left in the middle of that where Paul is giving us literally upside down reasoning of success. We live in a world that wants us to think about success in a certain way and Paul's description of what success in a church looks like, what success as a pong of God's people looks like, what success in the world really looks like, it's an upside down model of it. In fact, I was thinking about it this week and when we think about the American dream and we think about the typical understanding of success and when we talk about success in American terms and our cultural terms, it's almost like we think of an A-shaped life. And so we've got to graphic I want to put up on the screen that just shows what that is, and I'll read it for you because you may not be able to read it maybe from where you are, but this idea is that we start down here, we are born and we're there, and we, we start at different levels. So some of us start um, in a better place than others, but we desire to have this life of ascent, that we want to have our individualistic mind and desires, we have an idea of what we want our life to be like, and that includes personal goals and ambition and pride and self-importance, and we try to make our life. We try to climb the ladder of our work. We go through school. We try to get to a place where we're making a little bit more money each year. We expect raises or promotions. or We are thinking about our lives as kind of this life of ascent. And at some point, we think we want to reach kind of that moment when we think we've made it. I've got it. We're here. And as we think about that moment... Most of us, and I know this is a perfect kind of upside down V shape or an A without the line through it, but most of us would like to move this point as close to that point of death as we possibly could. We're continuing to improve and continuing to gain, continuing to go up, and then death comes and we're done, right? Like that's what we would like. And if you look at any, if you go to Barnes and Noble this afternoon, I guess bookstores are still open, right? If you go to Amazon and look online, if you look any of those kind of places, and you look at any of the self help section, you're going to see some mixture of this. Like you got to figure out what your desire is, what your passion is, and then you got to set goals about that. You got to align your life to the goals that you're kind of set. And as you do that, as you move upwards, you're going to begin to see things. And these are the tips of success, and these are the habits that you need. And here's how it works. And if we're not careful. We can take those values and place them into our spiritual lives as well. Now, this is who I want to be right here. This is what I, I want to get victory over this particular sin. And I want to see this happen in my life. And I want this in my kid's life. And so these are my goals. Those are my desires. And here are my step-by-step process. And here's my ambition and my desire. And if I start to line those up and I take some things out here and put some things here. And we begin to develop this performance-based spirituality. Where we can go, hey, I'm going to climb the ladder of what it is to be in a Christian life. And yet Paul says the way that we attain living our lives out for the glory of God is the exact opposite of this. Last week we looked at Philippians chapter 2, and I'm just going to do a quick little summary of what we did there, because instead of an A-shaped life, Paul describes a V-shaped life, where he says that it is not a life of ascent, but it is a life of descent. I mean, just last week he talked about the fact that we, if there's anything that we can do, we can participate in the Spirit. That is, that we no longer think about ourselves individually, we think about ourselves as part of God's family and how that moves it forward. That we have a unity of mind and love means we push our personal desires, our personal aspirations, we push those out the window and we begin to think what's best for the community of faith that I'm a part of, what's best for the community of God, what's best for the kingdom of God. We do that in humility where we are subjugating ourselves to others, where we don't think of ourselves more highly than we should. In fact, we count others as more important to ourselves and we look to the interest of others over and above us. Now today we're going to pick up in verse 5, and we're going to move forward and he says as an example of that, and this is where he continues the argument, we want to have the mind of Jesus Christ. And so that A-shaped life says that the way up is up, like you continue to improve, you continue to get better, you continue to advance, you continue to set those goals, you continue to push on. That's what we do in life in every aspect, it seems. The V-shaped life, the Christian life says, the way up is down. There was a title of a book a few years ago by Bill Hybels that just kind of encapsulated this thought. He said the life of Christianity is descending into greatness. It is going down in order to go up. And so today I want us to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Hopefully you've already got your Bibles turned there because we've been there. If not, take a moment and turn there or get your apps ready at Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to look today at one of the most talked about, one of the most debated, one of the most discussed, one of the most beloved passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. In fact, it is called one of the four great passages giving us an understanding of who Christ really is. John 1, for instance, tells us about the preeminence of Christ before creation and about his incarnation on this earth and how he came for us. Colossians 1 tells us about the supremacy of Christ in all things, that he is above all and in control of all at all times. Hebrews chapter 1 is a story of how God had sent Jesus as the ultimate revelation of who God is. And that in the past we looked at prophets and we looked at other things, but now we can look at Jesus. And then this passage we're going to look at today, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, gives us an understanding of the heart of God, of a description of who He is, and of a characteristic that most of us don't normally readily associate with God. My guess is that if I were to ask today for you to give me characteristics of who our God is, we would get way on down the list before somebody said humble, powerful, almighty, all-knowing, great, without peer, sovereign, gracious, merciful. I've participated before in those times when is your part of your prayer life is one in, in a year or a season where you write down a name of God at the top and then you give thanks to, the na- to God for being that in your life. I don't remember in those times me coming up with those lists that humility was at the top of what I wrote. And yet it is evident from this passage of Scripture not only that Jesus displays humility, but that it is because He is God That he displays humility. We're going to read it all at once and then we're going to come back for a couple of things to talk through it. Starting in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Now remember, this is talking to a church where he has told them to live together in unity, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, to put everyone else's interest in front of yours. And he says, to do that, you need to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Who? Existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This picture gives us an understanding of who Jesus is, why he did what he did, and how God responded to the humility in his life. And there are only two things I want us to notice in this passage today. The first is this. I want us to be reminded of the voluntary humiliation of Jesus. I want us to notice that. It tells us here in verse 5 that that is the attitude that we're supposed to have. That of Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that those of us that are followers of Christ, those of us who have been saved by Christ, that our goal, our desire is to model our lives after Him. And to model it after Him specifically in this particular way. even though he existed in the form of God, did not consider that as something to be exploited. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this verse. In fact, there are people that have done this whole section, verses 5 through 11, as like a six-week series of messages. I thought about just putting all of that into one and do a three- or four-hour message today and decided against it, all right? All God's people said, amen. I'm waiting for somebody to say, come on, and then we'll go, all right? So we're gonna, we're gonna look at this quickly. We can't unpack everything, but I do want us to notice a couple of things here. The first thing is that sometimes people doubt whether or not the Bible actually teaches the divinity of Jesus, and it's hard to, to really understand how they could argue that when you have a passage like this. It says here, existing in the form of God, the image, the fullness, the likeness, that particular phrase has been said by one commentator that it shows the continuous and constant existence of the very nature of God in Jesus. That He is fully God in every sense of the word. That He and God are one in the same, three in one. God appears in Scripture, described in Scripture, as God is one. In three personalities. And I don't understand how all that works together. And if you can explain it to me. You can't. Alright. It's just it's, it's something that is too big for the human brain to comprehend. Three in one. But this is the reality. Jesus Christ who walked the earth. Existed before he ever came to earth. And was, is, and always will be God almighty. And yet it tells us. That he did not consider that equality with God something to be exploited. A, a previous version said grasp or held onto." to. The, the word there is literally to, to take and to hold as if you have to keep. But the idea behind it is this idea that it's not something to be taken advantage of. That it ought to be used in a way. What's interesting about this passage is it can be read in a couple of ways and understood in a couple of ways. And I think that both can be applicable. The first is it can be understood that he was in the form of God and he did not want to, to exploit that relationship or that standing or that privilege. The other, which I think is also in play here, is existing in the form of God. The one way you could read this, one way you could think about this is because he was God, he did not consider his godliness something to be exploited. That what we're getting at here is that the heart of of who God Almighty, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit is, at the heart of that is this reality that they do not use their personal standing, which is God of the universe, in a way that is exploitive to other creation. But they use it always in humility for the benefit of those that they have created. We live in a country that talks a lot about our rights. And we do have lots of rights as Americans. I'm grateful for those. I'm grateful for the right we have to gather in this place to worship.
1: Some of those rights we
0: take uh, for granted sometimes. In the last year, we've come to enjoy this fact that we have this right more than I ever have before because we've had it taken away from us at different times. But as I think about what Scripture teaches is, That as true believers in Jesus Christ, one of the things that we must do is never hold on to our rights at the expense of declaring the goodness of our God. That we are to live our lives in line with him who did not consider holding on to the rights he had as God when an opportunity came to be able to serve others. And so we see it in his giving this up. The phrase he uses in verse 7 is he emptied himself. It's one of the most discussed phrases in the entire Bible. What do you mean he emptied himself? There's lots of discussion. about. We don't have time to go into it, but here's my understanding of what happened here. It means that he willingly came to earth as a human being and in some way self-limited himself for a period of time without divesting or getting rid of any of who he is as God. As one person said, he willingly added humanity to the God nature that was already there. And it says that he came as a man. Now think about this for a moment. When it talks about the humility of Christ, first of all, he steps out of heaven. He could have stepped out of heaven and said, I'm going to go to earth, but I'm going to go to earth as something they have not seen before. I'm going to come in an angelic way or I'm going to come as the Lord God Almighty and say, deal with it. Here's the reality. Turn or burn, right? Get right or get left. Here it is. Let's go. But that's not how he chose to come. He chose instead to take on literally the limitations of our bodies and become one of us. He put on flesh. One translation says I think about John chapter one, verse 14, where it says that he tabernacled with us. He moved into our neighborhood. And it's this amazing thing here when given the opportunity, most of us would gladly upgrade our physical bodies into something that was a little more powerful, right? That's the allure of the superhero genre of all things, that we could imagine one day we could get too close to a radioactive cube and instead of killing us or giving us cancer, it gives us spider powers. I mean, I don't know what's there, but those are like maybe one day, right? We could do that. I saw this week, I don't know if you've seen this this week, but there are reports coming out of various parts of the world where there are groups actively involved in trying to come up with what sounds like something out of a comic book, some sort of serum or injection that will give humans superhuman abilities. Now, it won't be flying, but like jumping larger, being able to get bigger, being able to be stronger, and it's for, as of course, military use. But what Jesus did was exactly the opposite of that. He gave up the superpowers and came to earth in the form of us in our weakened, limited bodies. And scripture says that's not where the humility ended, because he didn't just leave heaven. He didn't just take on the form of humanity. But then it says in verse eight, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there's two forms there. He became obedient to death, which meant literally he was willing to die. But it's not just any death. It is the death of the cross. Crucifixion is still considered in most places the most humiliating way to die in the history of the world that was formally sanctioned. Stripped naked, hung up on a tree with hecklers hanging around while your body is literally breaking down from the physical toil that it is just to breathe. Beaten and bruised, and we won't go into all the gory details today, but most of you have read them or know them. And so Jesus, when looking at the situation of our world, decided not only that he would step out of his privileged place of what is happening in heaven, he would take on the flesh of humanity, but he would die in the most humiliating way that you could die in the history of the world. That's a humble servant. Isaiah 53 talks about the servant that would come and the Messiah that would come and it wouldn't be the one pronouncing victory, but that it would be the one that came and suffered for us. Sometimes when you begin to talk about putting others' interest in front of your own, sometimes when we talk about, well, how humble is too humble, and what does it mean to be walked over in a doormat, don't you have to stand your ground, don't you have to say what you believe, don't you have to stand firm in who you are. And yes, there are times that we need to stand firm for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But more often than not, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how far are we willing to go in humility to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ and those that are without Christ at this moment? And here's all I know. From the example that Paul tells us to follow, the cross wasn't even too far. And we're worried sometimes about not getting our way exactly like we want it. Personally, with our families, we're worried about giving in too much so that somebody else will look at us as too weak, or in business, or in life in general, in churches We're worried about how much of our agenda we're going to give up and what that's going to be when the scripture specifically tells us that if it's going to work, we've got to follow the example of Christ who gave up his position in heaven to take on the flesh of humanity, to die on a cross for our sins. Some people have noticed in this passage kind of a comparison or a contrast with humanity in general, but particularly with the first human, Adam. And there's this contrast between who Adam is and who Jesus is when shown above. Now, that's not just some people have noticed. The book of Romans makes that clear that Adam and Jesus are opposites, kind of, that Jesus is undoing the sin of Adam and the life of Adam and giving us a chance to have that change. We see Adam was made in God's image. Jesus was in the very essence of God. Adam wanted to be like God, right? That's what made him eat the fruit, him and Eve, was that they were going to be like God. That was the promise of the serpent, where Jesus, literally being God, took on the likeness of man. Adam wanted to exalt himself. Jesus emptied himself. Adam was discontent, being God's servant. Jesus willingly became the form of a slave. Adam arrogantly rejected God's word and sinful disobedient. Jesus humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Adam succumbed to temptation. Jesus overcame temptation and crushed the tempter. Adam brought the curse on the world of sin. Jesus took the curse for the world. Adam was condemned and disgraced. And Jesus was exalted by the Father. The truth is that Jesus descended into greatness. Not only do we notice the voluntary humiliation of Jesus, we also notice the exalting of Jesus Christ. Because in this chapter right after, in these verses, it says, For this reason... For the reason that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the cross. For the reason that he became one of us on earth. For the reason that he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. For those reasons, for the fact that he came, for the fact that he died, for the fact that he took on the punishment of sin for us. Verse 9 says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me just say this. This doesn't mean that Jesus was in some kind of secondary position and God has moved him up to the top position. That's not what it means. It means that we have a new way to give praise and glory to God. We have a new way to give praise and glory to Jesus Christ. We have an added way to declare His goodness. We have an added way to declare His greatness. We have a new sense of who He is. The angels that are gathered around the throne, remember when we read that passage, if you were with us two or three weeks ago out of Revelation, when it says that they're looking who is able to unseal this, who is able to break the seals, who is able to open it, and then they say, ears is one who is able. And what made him able? He was able because he had shed his blood for you and me. And the angels are gathered around giving new praise, new glory, in ways that they had not before because of the reality of Jesus Christ dying for our sins. Not that he has a new glory that he didn't previously have. It's just a new way for us to declare it. And I love this picture. That he is the name above every name. That means that when it comes to humanity... We have never had one like him. We will never have one like him again. He was a hundred percent us, but he was a hundred percent God as well. And his name is literally higher than any other name. The word "name" there doesn't mean just the name Jesus, although it is uh, talking about that name. It is the reality of his character, of who he is, of what he did, of what he has done for us, and that name is above every name. And we declare it as such in this place, week after week. And my prayer is that we declare it in the the lives that we live day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, that Jesus Christ is the name above all names. And we look forward to that day that every knee, y'all know what the word every means, right? All knees on heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, I don't know who's under the earth going to be bowing. But Paul's just saying there ain't anybody anywhere escaping the fact that they're going to bow to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, do you want to see some humility even in his exaltation? To continue the theme of what Paul is talking about here. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for what reason? What does it say at the end of verse 11? To the glory of God the Father. There is this way in which the Trinity operates in which they glorify one another and always point and deflect that glory to the Father. The Spirit directs us toward Jesus. Jesus directs us toward the Father. The Father reminds us of who the Spirit is and who Jesus is. And it is a beautiful picture of humility and even sharing the glory that comes. Descending into greatness. We talked earlier about the A-shaped life and the V-shaped life. But the reality is we are called to live the Christ-shaped life. And this is just simply a picture of these few verses. He did not count equality with God something. He emptied himself into the form of a servant. Born in the likeness of man. Humble before that. Obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Therefore... God has exalted him to the name above every name. Every tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Verse 5 tells us that we are to adopt, and that word, by the way, is a continuous present understanding that every day, every moment, every action, we are to adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who lived his life not holding on to what rights he had, but gave willingly of what he had in order to see others come to faith in him and be saved. Two big takeaways from this passage and then we're done. The first is this, and it's the most important. Salvation is available only through Jesus. If you're listening today online, you're here in person, and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior That is the most important decision you can ever make. Christ literally gave up his heavenly home for a period of time to come to this earth in our flesh and died as a servant on the cross for our sins. You can look at that cross and you can see the humiliation that the world would heap upon him or you can see the glory that was coming as God established what was happening. When Jesus died on the cross, he literally took, the Bible uses a big word called propitiation. It just means that he took the punishment that was due for all of us completely upon himself to the very last drop. And all that you have to do to be saved and to be inducted into the family of God is just believe and accept that he paid for your sins on the cross. So the first most important thing here is that salvation is available through Jesus. Here's the second. We live following His example. We are called to follow His example of humility. In interacting with our families, interacting with our church family, interacting with the world at large, we are called to follow His example of humility. Maybe today you know a specific situation, a specific place that you need to follow that example of humility. Maybe it's in a thing that you have determined is something that must be done, but you realize it is only because of your desire and your want and your ambition. Maybe it's just simply surrendering who you are to the way of Christ and saying that I am willing to do whatever you ask me, Lord, whether it's in my church or in my family or in my community, in my workplace. Lord, I want to live my life dedicated to following your example of humility. Our prayer is this morning that we would live as people who look not to our own interests but to the interest of others and that we follow the example that Christ has given us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that in this moment (laughs) that we would not let our pride get in the way of doing what You've called us to do. Lord, even this week, as I read this very familiar passage again, I was overwhelmed again with just an understanding, Lord, of the sacrifice that You made for me. Not only on the cross, but in leaving your heavenly home and walking this earth for 30 plus years and putting on my flesh and blood the weakened state in order to deliver us from sin. So Lord, we pray that we would live with humility. I pray, Lord, that if there's someone listening today, either online or here in person, that does not know you as their Savior, or that today would be the day that they would make that decision and accept you. For the glory of your name, for the sake of your kingdom, Lord, I pray that people are coming to faith, understanding their need for salvation and being saved because of who you are. We pray, Lord, all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.